You're listening to the GP Supervision Australia podcast, helping your registrar manage patients with long COVID. Presented by Professor Michael Kidd, AO, Dr. Kevin Arlett and Dr. Simon Morgan. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome. We're going to be talking about helping you register our managed patients with long COVID. Now, just to start off, none of us here as presenters are actually experts in long COVID. I don't know if there's too many experts in long COVID either anywhere in the world, but we're not claiming expertise. But we're not looking so much at the um, clinical side of long COVID, but there will be a little bit of that later on with Simon. But mainly we're going to look at the policy implications and uh, an update from uh, Professor Michael Kidd. So the objectives of the session, so to describe the Australian government's response to post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, which is what long COVID is now called as, and uh, how to identify long COVID and distinguish it from other comorbidities, and then talking about how to develop an effective patient-centred and evidence-informed management plan for patients and how to put that through to the registrars so that when they have questions or they strike someone with long COVID, they might have the best way to manage these patients. We have two speakers. We have uh, Simon, who doesn't need any um, introduction, really. He's our education manager for GPSA. And then Professor Michael Kidd. So before I introduce Michael, just want to pass on congratulations. Uh, Michael was awarded Officer of the Order of Australia and the King's Birthday Honours. And congratulations, Michael, on that one. For those who don't know Michael, I think most people probably do. He's Deputy Chief Medical Officer and Principal Medical Advisor with the Australian Government's Partner Health and Aged Care. He's a Foundation Professor of Primary Care Reform at the Australian National University. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, he's had responsibility for the National Primary Care Response, and thank you very much for all of your hard work there, Michael. He's also a world-leading authority on primary health care, as we know. He's worked for many years as a GP in inner-city, rural and remote practices, special interest in HIV-AIDS, mental health, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health, and he's past president of both the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and the World Organisation of Family Doctors, or WONCA. And, of course, the WONCA conference is in Australia this year. So I'll hand over to you, Michael. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you to GPSA for inviting me along. I'm going to talk to you about what's happening uh, at the national level with long COVID, uh, which we're also calling the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, or PASC and give you an update on what's happening uh, at the Commonwealth level. Hopefully it'll help to provide some context to the further discussions. So I'm going to talk about the definition of long COVID and PASC. I'm going to talk about what it actually is. I'm going to share with you some of the existing resources that we have to support the nation's GPs in supporting uh, people who have symptoms of long COVID or PASC. I'm going to talk a little bit about the inquiry, which has just been held by the House of Representatives in Canberra into long COVID, and then the response from the federal government. So firstly, the definitions. The term long COVID is being used in Australia and elsewhere to describe both people who have continuing symptoms of COVID-19 lasting more than 
four weeks, and also people who are diagnosed with the post-COVID-19 condition or syndrome. And the World Health Organization definition of the post-COVID-19 condition is people with a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection, and it's usually at least three months from the onset of COVID-19 with symptoms lasting at least two months and which cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. The WHO talks about common features in their definition, including fatigue, shortness of breath, and that cognitive dysfunction, the brain fog, which so many people describe, as well as many others, which have an impact on everyday functioning. What is long COVID or PASC? We've still got a lot of uncertainty in Australia about the prevalence of long COVID. And part of the challenge we've got in Australia is the unique experience we have had of the COVID-19 pandemic, given that our population was, to a large extent, did not experience COVID-19 in the first couple of years, as happened in so many other parts of the world. And when we did start to have lots of people being infected with COVID-19, most of those people had been vaccinated with at least two doses of COVID-19 vaccines. So that has modified what's happening with long COVID in Australia, and it modifies some of the presentations that we're seeing as well. What we do know is that this is a multi-systemic condition. The pathogenesis is unclear and there are probably a number of pathogenesis are happening, underpinning different people with symptoms of long COVID. In the medical literature, we've seen over 200 symptoms described. So I defy anybody to be able to recall all 200 possible symptoms and patient presentations can be very variable. Another challenge is that some people who are presenting with symptoms of long COVID may actually not know that they've had COVID-19 in the first place. So they may have had asymptomatic infection or they may have had symptoms but not have had a diagnosis made of COVID-19. From the literature, and this is primarily from studies carried out in the pre-Omicron era, the known risk factors appeared to be being a woman, being of an older age, not being up to date with vaccination against COVID-19, people who have had particularly severe illness during the acute COVID-19 infection, and people with pre-existing comorbidities. But having said that, we have still seen people who've been quite debilitated with long COVID who fall outside those particular known risk factors. The issues about uh, diagnostics and therapeutics, one of the current challenges we have with making a diagnosis is a lack of consensus regarding classifications and diagnostic criteria. This is work which is still underway at an international level through the WHO. We don't have any PASC-specific diagnostic tests currently approved in Australia. There are a couple of tests out there being tested overseas, but none of them have been approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration here in Australia. And so we're still waiting to see what happens. If we do get a specific diagnostic test, that's going to be a game changer for our work in general practice. But how far away that is, or if it ever happens, remains to be seen. Similarly, we don't have any specific medicines listed on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme for the treatment 
of PASC. The treatments that we do have are treatments to treat individual symptoms related to long COVID, but there's no medications specifically for long COVID. Among the existing resources which are available to you, and I assume you probably know most of these already, Royal Australian College of General Practitioners has produced a couple of editions of their clinical resource, their guidelines on caring for people with post-COVID-19 conditions, and I commend this guideline to you. It's very useful and it's quite short, it's quite simple, and is probably a good thing for your registrars to have a read of as well. It's available free of charge on the college website and uh, the funding for the latest edition has been provided by the Commonwealth. The RSCGP has also produced a resource for patients. So if you do have patients who you diagnose with long COVID and they'd like more information about what's happening and what they can expect, then you can provide them with a link to the patient resource as well, which again is on the college website free of charge. The National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force has and continues to monitor and review the latest research and the most up-to-date evidence on long COVID. The living guidelines which have been produced by the National Clinical Evidence Task Force outline care after COVID-19 and also includes a really excellent flowchart on the care of people after COVID-19. And again, I think this would be a really useful resource for your registrars to have a look at and have available for their use when they're seeing their patients. The task force, their funding from the Commonwealth ended at the end of 2022, but their work is continuing and the latest edition of the flowchart and their guidelines is from the 22nd of May this year. So it's quite up to date. Again, this is available free of charge. And each of your state and territory health departments also has resources on long COVID and particularly provides details about if you do feel that your patient would benefit from referral about what state or territory funded services are currently available to support the management of COVID-19 and long COVID. Finally, there are some other resources available. Uh, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has produced a review of the literature and also has been funded to develop a register of everybody who's been diagnosed with COVID-19 in Australia. And that uh, register is going to become a really important continuing resource for following what happens with long COVID or PASC in Australia. The National COVID-19 Health and Research Advisory Committee, which I co-chaired with Professor Sharon Lewin, produced a review of the international literature on long COVID, which informed the parliamentary inquiry on long COVID, and also some resources for consumers, including a resource from Beyond Blue, looking at some of the mental health impacts of long COVID and PASC and advice to consumers on what they can do to help themselves as well. So a little bit about the parliamentary inquiry. So Minister Mark Butler asked the House of Representatives to carry out this inquiry. It was chaired by Sydney paediatrician, Professor Mike Freelander, MP, and had a number of the doctors, including GPs, who are in the Australian Parliament sitting on the inquiry. And uh, their inquiry uh, report is available. The final report has been tabled in Parliament and it's publicly available. It was called Sick and Tired, Casting a Long Shadow. 
and they made a number of recommendations about the definition of long COVID being used in Australia, about uh, evidence-based guidelines currently available for diagnosis and treatment, recommendations about ongoing research, recommendations about the importance of continuing to push the COVID-19 vaccines. And thank you to all of you for your continuing work uh, in the National COVID-19 Vaccine Program. The importance of continuing to look at the benefits of antiviral treatments. There is some evidence coming through about showing the benefits of at-risk people having had antiviral treatments and perhaps limiting the impact of subsequent long COVID, and particularly looked at the models of care for people with long COVID in Australia, had some recommendations also about air quality and ventilation, and also some recommendations about looking at chronic fatigue syndrome and ME and some of the parallels with patients who experience CFS and patients experiencing long COVID. Probably the most important outcome from the inquiry was recognising that primary care, in particular general practice, has the central role in Australia in the diagnosis and management of people with long COVID or PASC. The vast majority of people who have been diagnosed with long COVID are being cared for exclusively in general practice. Only a small subset of people are being referred on to other consultant specialists or to special long COVID clinics where they exist in some of the states and territories. A lot of uh, coordination of care is happening through general practice, working with particularly allied health professionals, uh, physiotherapists, dietitians, psychologists, and others. But a very welcome outcome from the inquiry was acknowledging the central role of general practice and the importance to continue to develop the supports for general practice through education, through guidelines, through resources, and through our research to support the work that we do. Finally, just a little bit about what's happening with the continuing response from the Australian government to long COVID or PASC. The Minister for Health and Aged Care, the Honourable Mark Butler MP, after the inquiry report came down, announced $50 million of research funding from the Medical Research Future Fund into research into PASC or long COVID with a particular focus on research into the primary care management of PASC and long COVID and support for patients through primary care. In addition, the uh, federal budget, which came down in May, had a number of announcements which were increasing supports for people with chronic disease and needing chronic disease management, including people with long COVID. Over $6 billion, as you'll be aware, was in the budget towards the strengthening Medicare initiatives, including the new Medicare rebates for people requiring consultations longer than 60 minutes, enhanced incentives to support more allied health professionals and nurses working in general practice and support commissioning by primary health networks of allied health professionals to support smaller or solo practices. The introduction of My Medicare with the offer to the population for voluntary patient enrolment with the general practice of their choice and a number of initiatives which go along there as well. Just wanted to reinforce that the chronic disease management items, as you're aware, these are for people who have symptoms lasting for three months or longer. We are making a diagnosis of long COVID after two months of people with persisting symptoms. But if you believe 
that your patient uh, presenting with long COVID is likely to have symptoms which last for three months or longer, you are able to initiate a chronic disease management plan and for the patient to get access to the uh, Medicare rebates for additional services prior to the three months. As long as you document your clinical decision in your notes, you won't have any problems there. And finally, the Commonwealth, through the Department of Health and Aged Care and the Office of the Chief Medical Officer, we're developing the National Post-Acute Sequelae of COVID-19 plan. Again, uh, if I have my way, this will be reinforcing the central role of general practice and primary care. That plan is being informed by the Australian Government's formal response to the findings of the House of Representatives inquiry into long COVID. But key aims of the plan are there to improve our ability to deliver care to people living with long COVID, to develop additional resources for the public and healthcare providers, and to support research to support the work that we're doing and to guide further policy and clinical care. Thanks, Michael. Why have we changed long COVID to past? Yes, so this is in line with the international definitions which are being utilised. So we're following the recommendations from the World Health Organisation. We think it's important that when we make a diagnosis in Australia, it's the same as the diagnosis which is being made in many other countries rather than every country going it on their own and having their own uh, definitions. So the evolving discussion around long COVID is moving more towards this description of the post-acute syndrome or the post-acute condition, which really brings it in line with the work which we're experienced with in general practice in managing post-viral symptoms or conditions in our patients after other viral illnesses. This is new, but the concept is not new to us in general practice. How is PASS different from post-viral fatigue that's been around for a long time? Is there a difference? So the fatigue is one element, well, one possible element of PASC. As I mentioned, there are 200 plus possible symptoms which have been described against PASC or long COVID. The fatigue is one of them, but there are a whole range of other symptoms as well. Symptoms which we particularly worry about are the cardiovascular symptoms, which we saw particularly early on with people who'd been infected with the ancestral strain or the Delta strain, Alpha and Delta strains of COVID-19. Fortunately, that seems to be a lot less prevalent following the Omicron strains, particularly in people who have been vaccinated. Is it a recognised condition at Centrelink or NDIS? The work in describing long COVID and PASC in Australia is still underway. So my understanding is it's not yet recognised by the NDIS or, for example, under Centrelink as a cause of permanent disability. It's still early days in our understanding of PASC or long COVID and particularly in our understanding of the long-term prognosis. What we do know is that the majority of people recover and recover quite soon. But of course, many of you will have seen people now who have had symptoms which have lasted for a year or more now that we're seeing more and more people with long COVID and certainly overseas in countries where there was a lot more COVID-19 infection early on, there are people with symptoms lasting two or three 
three years. So again, our understanding is is building up over time and we need to wait and see what happens with definitions for the NDIS, Centrelink and other groups. Thanks. And there was the last one about antivirals reducing the of PASC, and I think we know that that does happen, don't we? So. There is some evidence supporting the use of antivirals, and there was a, a section in the House of Representatives inquiry looking at that and looking to see if there was enough evidence to warrant expanding eligibility for the antivirals that's being considered by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. We don't have any further advice on that, though, at the moment. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Michael. I appreciate your time and uh, a great presentation. And we might hand over to Simon now to run through some of the clinical stuff and the specific bits about teaching your registrar to deal with this. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a GP and a medical educator. I'm based here in Awabakal country in Newcastle in the Hunter Valley. And I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands, the Awabakal people, and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Well, now, I'm no expert on long COVID, but I have had a, a bit of a look at some of the evidence and some of the guidelines, and I'm just hoping to sufficiently upskill you for you to have a greater sense of confidence around, A, managing this condition in your patients, and B, certainly teaching it to registrars. I would very much like you to consider this scenario as part of your dual role as clinician and educator, that you've got a registrar in the practice who is seeking some advice about the 46-year-old hospital cleaner who's had PCR-confirmed COVID infection eight weeks previously, and she's presented with this persistent symptoms, two of three of which are the most common symptoms of long COVID fatigue, and brain fog, but she also has muscle aches. The, the third of those most prominent symptoms is um, respiratory symptoms or shortness of breath. She's missed a few days of work and it sounds like long COVID and she asks your advice as it's very, very common in your role as supervisor. Thinking now from a supervisory role, what broad themes of quality general practice should be considered when responding to her? So as our registrars do, they want to know the clinical. They want to know whether metformin's going to work and what blood test you might need and should she have a chest X-ray and the rest of it. But what other aspects of care? Is this a wonderful opportunity for you to explore with Nicole as a GPT-1? Differential diagnosis and appropriate investigation and examination, absolutely. She's going to want that, and that's a very reasonable thing to do. And hopefully at the end of this session, you'll be a little bit more upskilled, and at least if not, you'll know where to go. I had some advice from a colleague around what are the absolute core themes of managing patients with long COVID. And in many respects, they match very nicely the sorts of things we should be educating registrars on. And they were four. So the first one, symptom validation. There is very good evidence that long COVID is a real, and I use that term very respectfully, a real condition. And our role in supporting, advocating and validating symptoms is really, really important. It is not a psychosomatic condition. It's a genuine condition with abnormal biomarkers, as studies have shown. The second really important element is the role of paced personalised rehabilitation and so that is one of the few, very few interventions, certainly there's no pharmacological interventions apart from symptom management that we know work, so physical rehabilitation. The third one, I guess, is education, patients listen to and patient education. 
And the fourth one's positivity. And Michael talked about positivity around the fact that there is emerging evidence that most people with long COVID will actually improve and get better after a period of 12 to 18 months. But basically, when we think about this, registrars are driven by the clinical, but as I have talked to you before and your colleagues around, this is a great opportunity to talk broadly. So yes, clinical care, but really what does your registrar need to learn about long COVID and so many other things we actually field questions about. Communication. So how do we actually communicate effectively with a patient who is potentially frustrated and disenfranchised and feeling really kind of probably that they're not getting anywhere with a condition that's very difficult to diagnose and to explain. It's an opportunity to explore some differential diagnoses. So how does this, our registrar reason? How do they bring a, you know, a cluster of symptomatology together to potentially make this diagnosis? How do they incorporate investigations, potential referral into their reasoning? How do we manage the consultation, build rapport and seek patients' agendas and data gather effectively and explain this problem and safety net and follow-up? How does our registrar genuinely involve a patient? This is possibly the quintessential condition to consider patient-centred care. Everything about this condition requires us to consider the patient primarily in assessment, in management, in developing a plan. How do we maintain professional and ethical practice? How do we maybe educate registrars who are cynical about the existence of this condition or patients that just don't get better? How do we support our registrars organisationally, documenting, referring, using appropriate templates, care planning, that sort of thing, and to be truly reflective practitioners and, and learn from their um, experience? So the first thing I would say is that when a registrar asks you about long COVID in terms of teaching, there's a lot of important, interesting and well-described clinical management that we can uh, support their development in. But there's this whole range of other aspects of practice that I'd encourage you to explore. And probably the last but not least would be around managing uncertainty. And this is a condition of uncertainty by way of, certainly by way of diagnostics, as Michael's talked to, and even management planning can be an area where there's a lack of clarity. So we'd be referring you if you're not feeling confident in supporting your registrars to manage uncertainty to our guide on that topic. So that's my first kind of point around think beyond the clinical. What other aspects of care when you're teaching registrars about this condition can you broaden your education to? But also what aspects of best practice teaching and supervision should be considered? So what do I mean by that? When a registrar like this says, hey, can you help me out with this patient? Why? Firstly, ask yourself, why is Nicole asking for help? Is she needing saving? Is she genuinely struggling? A schema that James Brown, a medical educator from Victoria, taught me about, and I think it's just wonderful. Every single time you're posed with a, a registrar seeking a question, you can look at it through this prism. Is my registrar needing to be saved because they have no clue? Needing to be helped because they're, you know, they're not confident, but they just need some guidance. Or in fact, they know what they're doing and they need some reassurance. So where does Nicole sit in that hierarchy? And as a GPT-1, it's probably likely she's not hugely confident. And then, of course, the approach to responding to a registrar's queries. 
ask Nicole, give me a, a nice, succinct problem representation. Give me a summary of the case, including relevant positive and negatives. Good. What is your question? Is it about diagnosis? Is it about management? Is it about referral? Is it about other aspects of care? What is your specific question that you're seeking? You can assess the reasoning. You can proffer what support you can potentially. You can use that as a teachable moment. And again, you may be a bit more informed to do that. Michael, you did talk about a lot of the resources. And of course, I've encouraged our supervisor cohort to explore and to teach beyond the clinical, but about long COVID, some of the clinical evidence and some of those clinical evidence guidelines. And that's something your registrars will want to know about. I came across this paper, a very, very recent paper from the BJGP, looking at a cohort study in Dutch general practice of patients with and without long COVID. It's relatively small, but they compared patients with long COVID to those without. And I think the first interesting point is that, and this was looking specifically at fatigue, that people without COVID are tired too. So all fatigue doesn't necessarily need to be attributed to this condition, but clearly it is on ratio of 03. So it's much more likely if a patient's had confirmed or probable COVID, they're going to have persistent fatigue. What this study was looking for was prognostic factors. They actually looked at the patient's educational level, their social circumstances. They used a neuroticism scale, which I wasn't familiar with, a resilience scale. Perhaps not surprisingly, the patients who had persistent fatigue post-COVID were overrepresented with some of these risk factors. And I thought this was a really important area. We've talked about, and as you've heard, the best way to not get long COVID is to not get COVID. And the best way of not getting COVID, and I'm sure Michael's maybe said this once or twice in the last few years, is to get vaccinated. But this, I guess, allows us to think about how we can not prevent long COVID, but maybe identified early or maybe lessen its impact. And so their summary was that psychosocially vulnerable people, of which I know many of our supervisors are working in that particular community, have a higher risk of persistent fatigue. And so when patients who maybe meet some of those criteria, we should be aware of the increased risk and adapt the treatment plan to prevent its development. Maybe that's a little bit ambitious, but just to say this person's at high risk, what can I do? How can I get in early to potentially prevent it? Michael talked to the Living guidelines. Now, when I give presentations to registrars and, and others, I'm always very excited when I can refer to living guidance because this can change in response to a paper that's released today and potentially be enacted tomorrow in, in a general practice somewhere in the country, unlike printed guidelines, which can take a very, very long time to reflect changes. So wonderful guidance. And I'm not intending to go through them, except Michael referred to the flowchart. And it's a very, very readable set of guidelines. It's just some of the relatively comprehensive, obviously, but some of the really important points I thought we could take out of these is the importance of patient-centeredness. So what are the patient's wishes and concerns and desires? We need to think, is this related to acute COVID? And clearly a potential long COVID relapse might be a new condition or indeed acute COVID, or is it their comorbidities or an exacerbation of comorbidities as a result of a COVID infection? So it can be quite complicated. The point being that if somebody's presenting with shortness of breath or brain fog or muscle aches, we do need to be 
fairly thorough in trying to exclude other causes before we make a diagnosis of long COVID. And that is where the investigations come in, which I'm not going to go into in detail, but they are well illustrated in those guidelines. And as we talked about, you know, this is a very much an area of research, and this is general practice, how we can support patients to self-manage, how we can provide psychosocial support, the importance of physical rehab and symptom control. I want to point you to a really nice paper as well from the BMJ from late last year. And why do I like this paper so much? For a few reasons. It gives a really nice collection of symptoms, not all 200, but many of them, including how we should investigate them and how they can be managed symptomatically. It talks about the red flags that we need to identify. A really nice section on questions patients ask, which is just so useful for us as GPs, I think, indications for referral. And lastly, there's this lovely visual summary, which for me is a really nice way of putting this together. So I'd recommend having a look at this particular paper. And that's the symptom cluster. So again, of I think a couple of pages, you can see fatigue at the top. It talks about how that presents, what investigations might be reasonable and, and how we should manage that with what evidence there is in this space. And lastly, it talks about what we can do. And I've already flagged what I think those most important things are, what can primary care teams do and when might we be considering specialist review. But as Michael, I think, has very, very importantly said, it's our job. There's no way on earth that specialist referral centres can ever manage the numbers. And in fact, they'll only be doing what we are doing in many respects, apart from those patients that need uh, specific care, as you can see. Question. So Michael talked about the diagnostic criteria. Pain syndromes, I couldn't see a lot on that. Certainly myalgias and arthralgias and other rheumatological presentations of long COVID are common, but I wasn't sure about other specific pain syndromes. I did talk about comorbidities. The point is clearly patients can present post-COVID with a, a PE or myocarditis or other sequelae from the acute infection or it may be an exacerbation of their heart failure or their respiratory disease from the infection itself, or it may be just a deterioration in their comorbidity. And it's our job as GPs to attempt to tease that out as thoroughly as we can. Investigations we talked about briefly. My understanding is that there's no effective pharmacological therapies that have been definitively proven to help and certainly that PBS is recommending we use. The long COVID clinics, uh, very specific to your local region. I think the workup is very much based in health pathways or the, the guidance that we've talked about. And I guess lastly, you know, the importance of communications around vaccination, around the role of antivirals. And again, Michael talked about the enhanced data collection that's going to flow from the parliamentary inquiry. So maybe some questions. And Michael, I don't know if you have anything more to add around those specific questions that were asked around pain syndromes and and certainly specific pharmacological therapies? Very little to add, Simon. There may be treatments which help to manage the symptoms which a patient has. So, you know, obviously treat the person who's in front of you. Each person will be individual with what they're presenting with uh, the impact that it's having on them. So treat that person as appropriate. But I did want to talk about data collection because one of the challenges is if we don't record long COVID or PASC 
as being a possible diagnosis with our patients. And so if we're not recording it, then it's not going to be picked up. It's not going to be counted. We're not going to really understand what's happening with this condition in Australia. So my encouragement to you is that if you do diagnose someone with long COVID or possible long COVID or PASC, please do document that in your record so that we can add it if your records are being used as part of the data collection, which is happening in many of the primary health networks around the country. There was one specifically about vaccination in cases of long COVID. Do you know the answer to that, Michael? So I think the question was, do we recommend further vaccinations if a person has had long COVID? And the advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group and Immunisation, ATAGI, is that long COVID is not a reason for not having a further vaccination. But you may well need to talk with your patient about the benefits of vaccination and the pros and cons, find out why they may be concerned about being vaccinated. Thanks. So if you had long COVID, would you pay $1,000 for a course of antivirals, assuming you could afford it? No, not at the moment, but let's keep an open mind on all of this and let's keep an eye on the research as it comes through. I think that the benefits that we're seeing of the antivirals is in reducing the likely severity or duration or incidence of long COVID in people. So using the antivirals when people have COVID-19, not using the antivirals in a post-COVID situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it's certainly a post-viral syndrome, isn't it, rather than a viral syndrome, we think, at this stage anyway. What we haven't talked about, certainly long COVID does affect children as well, and the guidelines will talk to that as well. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much, Simon. Well, thank you, Kevin, for chairing. And Michael, really lovely to have you on. Good luck with the ongoing work you do. And thank you very much for all the hard work you've put in over the last few years. It's been very much appreciated, I think, by the community. Very much so. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervision Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervision Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.